Let me pray for us and we'll get going from there. Uh, Father, we thank you for the evening. And uh, as we do think about Thanksgiving, we are thankful for so many ways that you have provided for us so many blessings. And one of those is, is this church and these people and the, the opportunity to gather around your word. So we lift up the evening and pray for your, your presence and your blessing as we, as we study your word tonight. We pray that it would not merely be um, an intellectual event, but it would also transform us, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds and conformed to the image of Christ uh, for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, as you know, we're going book by book, following the storyline. And one of the, one of the aspects of the storyline that's there, but we haven't talked about a lot, is this idea of paradise or you know, the kingdom of God fully established and set up is, is paradise. It's, it's the Garden of Eden, or it's heaven, Revelation 21 and 22. Points along the way in the story where you kind of think it's about to happen, like this is it. Um, for example, you know, when Jesus comes and he says the kingdom of God is here, his disciples are thinking, this is it, like it's about to happen. And you remember two of them start arguing, who gets to be in charge? <laughs> like, this is about to happen and I want to be in, in charge. And, you know, that, so there's several times along the way in the storyline when you're thinking, oh, boy, this is it. It's about to happen. And, and First Kings is really, I would say, one of those times. And so we're going to focus in on First Kings chapters 1 through 11 and really the story of Solomon. Um, there, there's kind of two major characters of the book. Solomon takes up the first half and Elijah takes up the second half. Um, so we're, we're focusing on Solomon tonight, and I just want to talk about kind of three aspects around this paradise. Um, first one is the anticipation. There's an anticipation that, once again, the kingdom of God's about to be established full force, paradise, Garden of Eden restored, Satan crushed. Um, let, me, let me begin with a summary Let's do a quick summary here of 1 Kings 1 through 11. See if I can find it. So, chapter 2 David dies. And, you know, interestingly, he has a son, Adonijah, who wants to take his throne and goes for it, kind of similar to, you know, Saul. It's a person seeking after it, and he gets rejected. And then you have Solomon, who doesn't seek after it, but he gets, he gets exalted and gets appointed. So Solomon becomes the king. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. <clears throat> so Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. And then chapter 3, we got this story of God asking Solomon what he wants, and he asks for wisdom. And God grants that. Uh, look at verse 9 there, chapter 3. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern your great people? That's a great prayer for any leader. Don't we wish that all of our civil leaders would pray like that? Uh, just help me know good from evil, so I can discern what's right and wrong. Verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your, your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that no one like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. So God really honors his request. It was a, it was a smart request. And by the way, that's a great prayer to pray. Give me wisdom. Right? We tend to pray for the things like long life and riches and the downfall of our enemies. And we tend to gravitate toward those things. Uh, vindicate me, right? And, and that's not necessarily wrong, but here's a good lesson to learn. Ask God for wisdom. Um, I, I, I ask for wisdom pretty frequently. <laughs> um, and, and God gives him wisdom. Chapter 4. Solomon increases in wisdom. 
And, of course, he's going to be the author of some of what we call our wisdom books, like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And his father, David, is the author of a lot of our Psalms. So a lot of the poetry in the Bible comes from the two kings. It's kind of interesting. Um, look at chapter 4, verse 34. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. All right, chapter 6, Solomon builds the temple. It takes seven years, according to verse 38. He was seven years in building it. And then in chapter 8, they bring the ark and set it in the temple. Remember, David had it brought to Jerusalem, but now it gets brought into the ark. And chapter 8's a great chapter. It's A lot of it's Solomon's prayer, prayer of dedication, benediction. So, I mean, that's a good chapter to really just kind of, you know, some chapters are just good for like meditation and, and focusing on and settling in on, and that's this is one. So this is Solomon asking for God's blessing. And then chapter 9 is God's response to that request. And, and basically, he, he says, okay. Look at chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So that's chapter 9. And then chapter 10, we have this queen who comes from Sheba, Arabia, Middle East. And she is enamored. Uh, verse, I love verse 5. The food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he had offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. It literally took her breath to witness Solomon and his kingdom and what's going on. It took her breath away. And she says in chapter 10, verse 9, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. So, here's the point I'm making. We're at a point in the storyline where it's like, this is it, right? I mean, this is kingdom of God, paradise, it's about to happen. All the promises made to Abraham are being fulfilled. The promises made to David are being fulfilled. Let's, let's remind ourselves what those promises were to Abraham um, I'm just write it out. There was a promise of land, land, and there was a promise that he's going to make a nation. You know, it's going to involve sons and descendants. There was a promise of God's presence and blessing, and there was a promise of that that he would be a blessing to the nations. Right? These are the Abrahamic promises. Abra- uh, Genesis 12. So, land. Do they have the land? Yes. Nation. Do they have a nation? Yes. The presence of God. We actually do see the presence of God. Um, look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So it's kind of a, uh, what is it, Uh, Leviticus all over again. The glory of God filling the temple so much that it literally knocks them off their feet. So do we have God's presence among his people? Yeah, in a nice building, temple. How about Israel being a blessing? Number one, we have the nations coming to Israel. You got the Queen of Sheba, and you got you know people coming and witnessing this, and 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 you also have Solomon praying for the nations and for the foreigners. Look at First Kings chapter eight, verse forty-one. 
Likewise, when a foreigner who is not Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. That's a great mission right there. You know, that'd be a great missional passage to preach right there. Um, it's the heart of God for the nations to come and worship him. And Solomon has that desire. And what, what is it? It's a fulfillment of a promise to Abraham that the nations will be blessed. So we're starting to see, you're starting to get a glimpse, you know, they were anticipating Israel is about to be a blessing to the nations. It's happening. And then you think about the promise David that we looked at last week in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, first of all, David was promised, you're going to have a great name, a great dynasty. It's going to come from you, your son. And, of course, is that happening with Solomon? Absolutely. Uh, look at chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. Chapter 10, verse 23, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. So you've got a great name, people coming, it's David's son. We're seeing those promises fulfilled. What else? David was promised a place of rest. So like this idea of rest from enemies, no war, and that happens. Got to check that. And check that. That Israel is pretty much at peace. In fact, Israel gets extended a little bit to the north. So you got the, the kind of the land that David took. Plus, there's a little more, and there's it's generally general peace, peace from enemies, fortified uh, nation. Things are good. And then there was, of course, the promise of relationship with God, a fatherly relationship. God would be like a father and, and the son type of relationship with the king. And we see that. Chapter 8, Solomon prays for God's blessing. Chapter 9, God speaks to him and blesses him. You've also got this idea of discipline, like I'm going I'm to discipline you if you turn away. You see that in chapter 9. And then finally, fourth, we said last week, this promise of a forever kingdom. Forever kingdom was promised David. And now we see that same promise, you know, uh, come up again. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. God says, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So you notice the storyline of the Bible. We've talked about this before. You got the beginning, Eden, paradise. You got the end, heaven, paradise. You got the cross in between. And at some level, it's just promises. And you just, you just kind of keep coming back to the same promises. And they're just kind of, uh, you know, it's not like just disconnected stories, a story here, a story there, though that is true. There are stories, but it's, it's one story. Just keep coming back to the same promises, Genesis 12, 2nd 7, and, and you're starting to see it all come together here. Um, and there's this kind of anticipation that it's, it's about to happen. And I'm, I'm going to talk on Sunday about some examples of things that we look forward to, that we anticipate in our lives, what are some examples of things that we tend to plan for, build up to, look forward to, get excited about? What are things in this life right now that we tend to... Anniversary? You said birthday? Having a baby. Having a baby? Yeah. Absolutely. Wedding. Get pl- Wedding day? Yeah. Retirement. Retirement. Amen. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. Yes, sir. Kids coming, Kids coming home for the holidays. Graduation. Graduation, yeah. Everything building up to graduation. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. No, the same thing. 
Okay. There's something about that that's just just good, just right. I'm going to make the point on Sunday that there's something about Thanksgiving that I always like because it's it's like it's Christmas without all the hoopla. Any other thoughts? SEC championship games? (laughs) Vacation? Yeah. You plan for it, talk about it, think about it, get it on the calendar. Sometimes you get home from a vacation and you start planning the next vacation. (laughs) We're going to do that again, but we're going to do this a little differently. Life is fill, filled with things. I mean, we're always, in fact, we just, I was just talking to the Wolfords, and we, we had a big weekend this past weekend with a wedding, and they were very, did a lot. And uh, I said, are you all recovered? And she said, now we're looking at the next thing. You know, what's, what's next? We've got another thing to plan for, right? There's always something. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, that, that, that brings me to my next question. Is this generally a good thing to have these things that we're talking about, or is this generally good to have things that we look forward to and anticipate and get excited about? I'm seeing mostly head nods. Yeah. Yeah. What are, um, what, what is healthy about it? What is potentially unhealthy about it? What could be potentially unhealthy about it? Yes. So you, you kind of mentioned two different things that are both good answers. First one you said was you can obsess about it. So if we're always obsessing about that vacation or that holiday and it causes me to not be faithful and focused here and now on the kind of the mundane, the normal, ordinary, that can be a problem. I like unrealistic expectations. And unrealistic expectations was the second one. So you can kind of build it up like this is going to be paradise. Yeah, and sometimes we have expectations of other people. Like, kids are going to come home and stay here the whole time and be around the whole time, and then they end up wanting to go hang out with kids. No wedding is ever perfect. Yeah, yeah, no wedding is ever perfect. I I told the bride and the groom that this past weekend. Like, something's going to happen, and that's okay. (laughs) It's part of the, it's kind of a part of the fun of it. Any other thoughts on... Healthy, unhealthy expectations. Well, a healthy thing for anticipation, especially for our much older group of people, is that the anticipation keeps them hoping, keeps them excited, keeps them looking forward to something, whereas their life tends to start not feeling so looking forward. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So we have this expectation, anticipation. What's that? It's about to happen. Uh, and then the question is, does it? And of course, you know the answer. <laughs> it doesn't happen. The same pattern that we've seen over and over repeats itself. And let's think back to how often we've seen this pattern. Um, the garden. Here's paradise. All you have to do is don't eat from this tree. And sin enters and you have un, the unraveling, so the unraveling of paradise. I really do think I'm just preaching the sermon right now, so no need to come on Sunday. <laughs> I'm joking. We'd love to have you on Sunday. Um, then you got the flood. God wipes everybody out, except for you know one righteous man and his family. And that's going to solve the problem, right? No, it doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> Sin enters in, unravels again. And then you think, okay, God delivers his people from Egypt miraculously. Clearly, God is in this, hand of God, delivers them, meets with them on the mountain, smoke, fire, commandments. And then almost immediately, they go and create a golden calf. Sin messes it up. Going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then finally, God, you know, miraculously provides this land, Joshua, conquering, war, Ter- you know, Jericho, miraculous. They t- This is it. Here it is. And one generation later, don't remember, don't know, forget, and they're unfaithful. And you've got the period of the judges. 
And now you go through all the period of the judges, and now you, know, you get to David, and it's starting to kind of ramp back up. And things are starting to fall in place, and some of the promises are happening, and then David can't, it's not going to be David because too much blood and so forth and so on, but he's going to have a son, and it's going to come through Solomon. And now it's like chapter 9, we got these promises, it's about to happen, everything's coming together. And interestingly, I think it's interesting, we go from chapter 9 where you have these promises, like you're the man, I'm going to build my kingdom forever, and it's just two chapters later we have the downfall. Similar to Genesis. Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 3, downfall. So it only takes two chapters and it unravels. Let's look at the unraveling in 1 Kings chapter. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. There's the problem right there. Right? Every part of that is a problem. Many, that's a problem. Foreign is a problem. We'll talk about why and what that means, and, and women. And, you know, David's downfall was an inappropriate relationship with a woman, and that's going to be Solomon's downfall, but it goes off the rails even more than with David. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, so he's got Pharaoh's daughter, that's a problem. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. I wish I had looked up clung, if it's the same word that's used where the husband and wife are supposed to cling to one another. I'll do that tomorrow. He clung to them in love. He had 700 wives. Think about that. Like, I, I can't even come up with a good joke there. There's one. There's got to be one. 700 wives. One way to think about that, like, if you, it, just think about if he had a wedding ceremony with 700 wives, that's literally like every day for two years. No? That's, we talk about looking forward to weddings. After two years of weddings, that can't be too fun. Had 700 wives who were princesses, and 300 concubines, a thousand, a thousand women. Obviously not too wise of a guy, right? And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he bore all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. There's a name for this hill that's east of Jerusalem, and I'm drawing a blink on it right now. Does anybody recall what it's called? Not the Mount of Olives. It is east of Jerusalem, but it's a different one. There's a certain name they have, and I'm drawing a blank on it. But it's basically a, you know, a hill where he had these foreign idols. And you know, it talks about the problem is these wives. And you know, I, I don't, the problem is not that they are foreign, but they have the faith of their foreign gods. And it's the, it's the gods, it's the false gods that's the problem. And you know, one thing I would point to is uh, Boaz marrying Ruth. You know, he's, almost, he's commended. Ruth is a Moabite, but she has faith in the Hebrew God, and so he is commended for that. So it's not, it's not so much about they were from different countries per se. It's about they followed the gods of the other countries. He married them, and they turned his heart away from the one true and living God. And so it doesn't take very long at all. Um, and therefore, there are serious consequences that come with this. So look at chapter 11, verse 11. Therefore, actually, I'm going to back on up to verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you 
and will give it to your servant. So we'll pause there. So he says, I'm going to give it to your servant. Who's his servant? A person named Jeroboam. So this is going to be the big, the divided kingdoms. So just a little, I mean, you guys know all this. Sometimes it's just good to say it, though. So there's only a united kingdom, you know, you could say under Saul, but it's a pretty weak kingdom under Saul. There's a united kingdom under David. There's a united kingdom under Solomon. And that's really it. So the kingdom on the earth promised to Abraham, you know, it, it occurs under David. It occurs under Solomon. And then Solomon has a son named uh, Rehoboam. But because Solomon turned away the, the, turned away the way he did, it says, I'm going to give the kingdom to your servant, and the servant's name is Jeroboam. So that can create some confusion. Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And what happens with these two guys is the kingdom splits. It's torn apart. He says, I'm going to tear it away from you. And so what ends up happening is 10 of the 12 tribes go with Rehoboam, and two of the 12 tribes... Uh, two of the 12 tribes stick... I'm sorry, I, made that, I did that wrong, didn't I? Sorry. Rehoboam of the 12 tribes and Jeroboam, 10 of the 12. What are the two? Judah and Benjamin are the two. In the text, sometimes it just says one. I think Benjamin's sort of the younger brother. Um, so this is going to be called the southern kingdom because it's in the south. This is going to be called the northern kingdom because it's in the north. Uh, the cap of the southern kingdom is Jerusalem. The capital of the northern kingdom is Samaria. Yeah, eventually. Um, the, north, the, the southern kingdom is sometimes referred to as Judah. And the northern kingdom is often referred to as Israel. What's that? Ephraim. Yeah, that's true. Ephraim's one of the twelve. So, I just bring this out to say, when you're reading the Bible, you're reading the prophets, you're reading the storyline, and there's a reference to Israel. Um, I feel like my mic's kind of coming in and out. Can you all tell? It's okay? Okay. Uh, Sometimes you'll read Israel, and it's specifically talking about these ten northern tribes. So you have to, the context is what determines but it's just good to know from this point forward in the storyline, when you hear Israel, it's reference to this northern kingdom. When you hear Judah, Jerusalem, it's often a reference to the southern kingdom. Kind of like if I were to make reference to Beijing, there's a decent chance I'm talking about China, but I might just call it Beijing. It's kind of a shorter version. Um, so s- similarly, the Bible might refer to Jerusalem. It may not s- technically mean the city per se. It might be this southern kingdom. So, one split, the division of the south and the north, um, it's really two different groups. Two different groups of people, two different locations. Uh, Jeroboam uh, is going to almost in, immediately say, you know what, we got a problem. The temple's in Jerusalem. The people are going to have a t- temptation to want to go to Jerusalem to worship. That's going to be a problem politically. So we need to create places where people can go worship. So multiple places for people to worship. One of those places is called Dan, which is in the northern part of Israel. And I've been there, and I've seen the place, the altar that Jeroboam built in Dan where the people could go to worship. In fact, he, he literally created golden calves for the people to help them worship. It's like, do you not know your history? You know, golden calves. Don't you know the problem with golden calves? But it just, you know, it's repeating itself. And so sometimes in the Bible, these places are referred to as the high places. And it's places where there's only one place where the temple is supposed to be. There's only one place where the worship of God is supposed to happen with the sacrifice and everything. The, 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 The thought, God's plan 
And prescription is not just go sacrifice wherever you want. No, you go to Jerusalem to sacrifice. You go to Jerusalem to worship. Jerusalem is the only saints from here on out. There have been other places prior to this, but now it's Jerusalem. No other place. So this is a problem. Jeroboam creates the high places, and it starts a pattern that's going to just keep coming up again and again and again in the Bible. The high places, um, Dan, um, what's that? Gibeon. Is that another place where they put the high places in? There'll be multiple places. We'll, We'll read about it, hear all about it. And it's also syncretism where they will combine worship of Yahweh along with other worship. For example, that's why the golden calves. It's like, you know, but there's always this need for an object, which of course goes against commandment. Number one, no other gods, no images, no idols, nothing. You worship me, me alone. So the northern kingdom is primarily going to have, in fact, I think it's only, they only have evil kings. There's like no godly, you know, I'm sure there's one that'll do something decent here or there. But in general, evil kings, and this is the group that's really marked by sin, And therefore, they're only going to last about 200 years. So in about 200 years, they're going to be... um, Assyria is going to be the powerhouse that's going to come in and knock them out. And the Assyrians are going to come in, and they're going to intermarry. And then they're in Samaria, and Jesus is going to come through Samaria. And the the Jews are opposed to the Samaritans. Why? Because the Jews you know, see themselves as being the faithful ones. They remain faithful. Jerusalem, the temple, you know, where's the true worship happen? In Samaria where our fathers say, or in Jerusalem where your fathers say? That's what's behind, this is the history behind that. The Jew, the, this group looks at this group as being extremely unfaithful. Because uh, they all follow Jeroboam. And in fact, they just get worse and worse. And Ahab is one of the worst. And he shows up in 1 Kings. The southern kingdom is going to have a mixture of some good kings and some, and some evil kings. It's going to be a little bit of both. And every once in a while you're going to have a king and he's going to come along and he's going to be really good and he's going to read the law of God and restore worship and go destroy the highs and things are going to go good. And so therefore, the southern kingdom is going to last for about 400 years and then eventually fall to Babylon. And there's going to be a remnant, and, and, but it's, it's going to come through Judah. It's not going to come through these 10 of 12 tribes. So this, this event that happens, this division of the two kingdoms, is a very significant event that's going to, in a lot of ways, it's one of these milestones that just is going to impact everything else that happens. Any thoughts, questions, any of that? Did you all know all that and therefore it was unhelpful or some of that a little helpful? Do you mean by having a place to worship? Is that a copy? I don't know. I mean, I think all the world religions kind of have their holy places. And Jerusalem is certainly top of the list in terms of people viewing it as a a holy place, holy city. Um, But I'm not sure if that, you know, the idea of a holy place, a holy city, you know, I'm just guessing that you're going to see it among some religions in the ancient Near East. Um, you know, and it's going to tend to be the the Egypts and the, you know, some of the ones that you've heard of. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. The 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 Muslims, you know, they, they got the location where the temple used to be. They, they have control of it. And it's really weird. It's like Jerusalem belongs to, they have this agreement worked out. Um where you've got, uh, you know, on the, the place where the Temple Mount was right here, the, the Jewish people have the right to sort of have a gate for who can go in and who can go out, but they have an agreement where only the Muslims go into this holy site. So only Muslims go here, though this is considered the most holy place in Jewish history, 
the Temple Mount. Only Muslims can go in, and it's the Jewish people who are the guards who decides who can go in and out. So a lot of times when there's tension, it, it often happens related to this, because the Jewish people have the right to say, you know, who can go in and what, what kind of potential weaponry they can have to go in. But Muslims wouldn't even allow like me to go in to this, which is just crazy because it's the it's considered by Jewish people to be the most holy place, and they're unable to go. It's considered a whole it's considered a holy place for the Muslims. It's called the Dome of the Rock, but it's like number four or five on their list. So it's like the fourth or fifth most holy place for them. For the Jews, it's number one holy place, and they're not the closest place that the Jews go to worship is this. The Western Wall, and and all it is, is a retaining wall. It's like it's literally a retaining wall, and it's the place that today you know is the most holy for Jewish people because they are unable to go to this location. So anyway, that's that's a little bit of a that's chasing a little bit of a rabbit, isn't it? But interesting. Okay, where are we? Unraveling of the kingdom. Doesn't that speak to the idea, though, that all these earthly kingdoms, or uh, I think you use the word paradise, they're, they they don't really have any merit. It's, it's only what Jesus is going to do for it. Yeah. That's the only one that's ever going to last and actually work. Right. Yeah. Because Jerusalem, they can't even worship like they're supposed to if they're true Jews. Right, right, yeah. And you also just and you also look at history and you see the ebb and flow and fall and rise and this kingdom that kingdom and is yeah there's this who gets to control the land is constantly changing. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions about the divided kingdoms? Okay. So earlier I mentioned this idea of anticipation and we talked a lot about or we talked a little bit about how that can be a good thing, but we also kind of mentioned there can be some pain, some disappointment around it. So what are some examples of the pain and the disappointment that can come that's kind of associated the anticipation, the the building up to? What's what what are some of the disappointments that come with that? Any thoughts on that? Setting your expectations too high. Expectations too high? Yeah. yeah. Happens when plans fall through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can fall through. Expectations can be set too high. What's an example maybe of expectations being set too high? Like, I mean, I think of, you know, it, it seems to me like, when, at least my experience, when you're a kid, the holidays, you think about Christmas, it just had this, it can have a almost kind of magical feel. And as you get older, you, you know, it's like that kind of goes away at some level. And you go, do we really have to mess with presents? You know, my presents, that's just, it's just too much of a headache. Uh, let's just eat pop- <laughs> Grinch, I'm like the Grinch. It, uh, but it, it goes as you, you know, I don't know, from my perspective, it never quite has the feel like it had when you were a kid, you know? Uh, grandma's not there anymore. Um, it, it, it's, it's, things are different. The times change. People are no longer with us, and it just it doesn't have that same exact feel that you're kind of like, man, I, I remember as a kid a certain way, and it just never, I don't know, it just never quite meets that. Right. Nothing's ever what it's cracked up. Yeah. Yeah. So we get there, then you have this period of depression afterwards. You know, because that's it. The gifts are all done. Yeah. Now you got the mess to clean up. Yeah. You get this post-holiday depression for some people. Yeah. And there's tears and things that shouldn't be and brought back. Yeah. That's not going to happen in the real paradise. Right. Yeah. And why? Why is that? That difference. Try and fulfill our inner longing as human beings with stuff that's temporal, mm-hmm. like Christmas or or this kingdom here on earth. It's not really going to work. Right. It's not going to fulfill that inner thing that God created. Right. Us. So, what does it look like? The difference between 
a, you know, what's healthy versus unhealthy in terms of managing these expectations, right? What does it look like? Because, I, I mean, we don't want to be Grinches and be like, bah humbug, you know, we're not doing presents. Uh, uh, at the same time, what's that? Why not? Maybe, maybe so, maybe so. What's the difference between a, a healthy way to kind of deal with this, manage this, versus unhealthy? All right. Whatever it is. Yeah, it's like Ecclesiastes. Enjoy what it is that God's given you to do. And right. Do it with all your gusto. Right. And enjoy it. Right. Just, you know. So we're not talking about not having these expectations and not doing anything. We can still do it and enjoy it and, and go all out. And feel guilty about it. And not feel guilty. We don't have to be lifeless and ball humbug. But there is such thing as... Doing it in a way that's that's not healthy, right? What are examples of unhealthy ways of of doing it? Unhealthy ways of dealing with the disappointment, the pain of the unmet expectations. Yeah. Right. Yeah, some people will turn to substances because it gives an immediate relief. It gives an immediate break from the pain. I no longer feel the pain. I'm numb to it. And so there's a pain that's there. There's a disappointment. And some people medicate in order to soften that. Yes, sir? It can also become bitter yeah. rather than better. Yes, bitter rather than better. So you could say... I'm. I had this view of the way it was supposed to go and feel, and it didn't, and now I'm kind of I'm mad about it. And a lot of kids, you know, it's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. That's kind of that concept of like, now I'm quoting 50s music, right? <laughs> Oldies but goodies. 60s. Oh, I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> Solomon said it was, he tried wine, women, and song. And we would say nowadays, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. It's all the three bowls. Nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Solomon himself goes after these things thinking, if I can just build something or if I can just have enough pleasure or if I can just, you know, have enough, amass enough stuff, then I'll experience this. And and everything he does is like, "Ah, it didn't, it didn't satisfy. And he... Yeah, it took him a little experience to figure it out, right? Yeah. Y'all went through it recently, didn't you, in Sunday school? Some people, yeah. Very good. It doesn't make sense until you walk I remember one time I was leading a Bible study with a group of eighth graders. You know, I was in college and I thought, I'm going to really. We're going to really dig into the Word. I'm going to teach them Ecclesiastes. They're just like, <laughs> so I just wanted to wrestle, you know, and, and eat snow cones. <laughs> they weren't interested in these wisdom literature. All right. Um, well, any other thoughts on way unhealthy ways that we deal with the overspending? Overspending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Simple. Yes. If a person with their expectations, if a person who may actually have been in the wall and refused to have any further community, you know, if they, they haven't met my expectations, I'm done with it. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to go the other direction. You can also have such high expectations of a person that, you you know, it can almost crush them, you know, like. Meet this expectation. You know, a lot of people do that with their spouse. I, I need you to be this for me, and when, you know, it's it's it suffocates the spouse and it crushes them because he or she's not what I needed you to be for me. No. I think that people can have avoidance too, because if you don't do anything, then you can't be hurt. Yeah, yeah, that's very much an east, kind of an Eastern philosophy. Just don't have attachments to things. And then you'll never have pain because you never experience the loss of anything. So just don't do relationships, don't work at it, and just check out. And then, and a lot of times it does come with 
substances as well. It's just me and my world with substances, and then I don't there won't I won't have to deal with the the letdowns and the disappointments. Yeah. Oh, very good stuff. Um, I thought of the verse from in you know, Romans eight twenty two. Create even the creation is groaning. You know, so there's there's this law of us. This and we experience it because we live in this unraveled world with sin, and we still get little glimpses because there's still I mean there's still an anticipation. There's still good things, and once again we're not saying we're not saying you know live a miserable life. We're not saying you know separate yourself from attachments, uh, but we are saying there's a healthy way to do it and an unhealthy way to do it. But but at the end of the day, there is always an underlying. You know, it's never perfect. It's never paradise. And we are, I think, and I don't know, I don't know how to best communicate this this Sunday. I think that every time we experience that, it's supposed to kind of remind us, like, yeah, I, I, I can't experience that now. I get close to it. There are times, there are moments, there are situations, there are experiences where you get a little taste of it. You know, maybe Thanksgiving Day is an example. Or you get a little taste of food, good fellowship, enjoy life, be thankful. You get a taste of it, but it never is, it's never perfect. It's never exactly right. It's never, you know, for, you know I often overeat a little bit. <laughs> right? one, one extra piece of chocolate pie, just too much. Like, why did I do that? I was all good with three, and then I had to eat four, and it just went over the edge. And now I'm miserable. Um, but there's, I think it's supposed to remind us that, there, you know, you mentioned that there's a, it's pointing us to a, there is a day coming. When we will be satisfied, when when these longings will be met, and that is that is paradise. And it, it happened before; it'll happen again. And everything in between is it's kind of it's about that. It's about pointing toward it, either in our memory or in our future. Right? There's a distant memory of of paradise, I think, in all of us. And so, therefore, we know we know sense of how it's supposed to feel, even though we never quite feel it. All right, any other thoughts on that? One of the things is realizing contentment in whatever anticipation you're anticipating. Mm-hmm. And because we don't, that's where the disappointment comes in. Because contentment in whatever the situation is, is really where deal with it in a good way. Right. I'm content here regardless of where it goes. And it seems like such a fine line between cynicism and over-expectation. Like I, I, I so quickly can become cynical. Like, oh, I'm sure it's going to be miserable. or I'm sure it's, you know. Or have too high of expectation. It's got to be perfect. And that, I think you're right. It's a contentment of whatever happens. You know, and Paul talks like that, right? Whether in life or in death, my joy is in Christ at the center of it. And therefore, I, I, I can be okay, regardless of how this turns out. And so Solomon wasn't content. Yeah. And the parameters that God had to put before him. Right. He had to go beyond it. Right. And eventually to the, the foreign gods of the, of the wives, because he wasn't content. And a lot of that contentment comes with being content to follow God's, God's rules. Which would have forbidden him from from these women with these foreign gods, and then it's kind of a uh, one thing after another. So there's a contentment of just being content with how what does God's law say? I want to live within that, trusting that's what's good and right, and be content in that. And that if we can do that, then then I do think we can we can live even in an unraveling world. But we, yeah. We tend to make matters worse and compound it by, I've got to do something to, to satisfy the, the, the difference that I'm feeling here. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? That's good stuff. Okay. Let's, thirdly, we'll talk here about the hope of paradise. So, uh, there's an anticipation. It's about to happen. There's an unraveling happen, and yet... There's still hope. There's still, God's still at work. And I, I want to mention a couple of ways I think we see this in 1 Kings. One, we have 
the presence of some prophets, one in particular. So we have the ministry of Elijah. And of course, we could spend a lot of good time on Elijah. Elijah, we see some miracles. We see him, uh, you know, he was largely responsible for ministering to Ahab, who was an even worse king than Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. And you see him go, fighting the prophets of Baal Mount, Car- Mount Carmel, Carmel. And we got to go visit Mount Carmel for those of us, who, those who went to Israel. Anybody in here go to Israel several years ago? Yeah, there you go. You remember Mount Carmel? Looking out and seeing the place where they suggested that the, the, the fighting would have had a place where the sacrificing happened. Um, uh, it's Elijah who has, the, you know, God speaks to him in the still small voice, which is, you know, pretty interesting. I, I can't remember where it was, but I had the TV on, and I don't know if it was a TV show or a movie, but they, they use this phrase, a still small voice. And it comes from the King James translation of 1 Kings 19.12. God spoke to him in a still small voice. Right? Isn't that a phrase that we, it's one of those phrases that we hear like David and Goliath. That it's just in our language, even though most people probably have no idea where that phrase comes from. A still small voice that God speaks to him. So some great stories that unfortunately we just don't have time. But the, the main point I want to make here is that even in the midst of this, even in the midst of Ahab, God sends a prophet, Elijah. And God's still at work. There's still a prophetic ministry. And it's, you know, yes, he's calling them to repent. Yes, there's judgment and there's fire and there's, you know, killing the prophets of Baal. But the fact that God has a man in the midst of it working is, you know, preaching miracles is a fact God is not totally removed. He's still involved. And secondly, we have God's promise. God remains faithful to His promise. Look with me at 11, verse 13. I'm going to keep reading where I left off earlier. So let me, let me, let me read the preceding verse just to give the context. Uh, verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son, Rehoboam. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So there's God saying, I'm not going to do it in your day because of my promise to David. I'm going to do it in your son's day. Rip away the kingdom. But I'm promising you, he says one tribe. It ultimately ends up being two. One tribe, Jerusalem, because of my promise to David. And that one tribe is Judah. Look, look with me at verse 36. Basically see the same thing, but there's a certain phrase here that I want to point, it to, point out. Yet to his son, I will give one tribe. That's Solomon's son. Yet to his son, I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. So, of course, this is a promise. It's going to happen through Judah. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. There's going to be a lamp in Jerusalem forever and the new testament is making the claim jesus jesus is of the lion of judah which is a promise going all the way back to genesis 49 the scepter will not depart from judah the tribe is going to it's going to come through the tribe of judah it's going to come through david's david's son david's lineage and so the new testament listen for example to revelation 5 5 weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of judah the root of David has conquered. Why are they calling Jesus, in the book of Revelation, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David? Because it's saying, this is it. This is the one. The one promised to Solomon. Tribe of Judah, root of David, son of David. And listen to this. This is great. Revelation twenty-one twenty-three. 
and the city, referring to the new Jerusalem, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So what is the lamp in Jerusalem? The lamp is the Lamb. I'm going to put my lamp in, remember the verse, 1 Kings 11.36, To his son I will give one tribe that David my servant will always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. That's the promise. There will always be a lamp before me in Jerusalem. And Revelation says there'll be no sun, no moon, because there'll be a light and the light, will, the lamp will be the lamp. So the New Testament, the argument that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these promises. And so that's one way, you know, we talk about reading Christ and seeing Christ in the Old Testament. One way is promise fulfillment. Promise fulfillment. And that's, that's kind of where we often focus, and that's where I've been focusing. Promises to Abraham, David, Solomon, fulfilled by Christ. But there's another way that you can read Christ in the Old Testament that I try to do sometimes, and I'm going to do it this coming Sunday, and that is you can look for certain patterns. Is there a pattern in the text of the Old Testament that you can see a similar pattern in the text of the New Testament? And I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that. Look with me at 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. And by the way, just keep in mind the context. This is chapter 9. God's just told him, if you'll obey me, integrity of heart, verse 4, uprightness. Verse 5, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father. So he's saying, you know, it's about to happen. The kingdom's about to come. If you'll obey me, the kingdom's about to come. Uh, look at verse 6. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments, statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. By the way, I think that's a little bit of a play on words, an irony. Here's Solomon with all his proverbs and his wisdom, but God says, I'm going to turn Israel into a proverb. Verse 8, And this house will become a heap of ruins... Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So what's God saying? You're looking at this kingdom that's about to be established, and you're thinking it's about to happen when you... I'm about to bring this building down. I'm about to destroy this building. And in my mind, I went, I've heard that language somewhere before. Where do, you hear, where do we hear that in the New Testament? Yeah. Jesus Christ with his disciples. And what are his disciples thinking? This is it. You're the king. We're about to sit on your throne. You're, you know, it's about to happen. The kingdom's here. And they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, east of the city, and they're looking at the temple. It's not Saul, it's Herod's temple. But it's rebuilt, same place, massive building, beautiful. And what does Jesus say to him? Not one of these stones will be left on top of the other. In fact, let's look at it. Look at we'll look at Mark's version. You see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark chapter thirteen. Uh, verses 1 and 2, of course, they look and they say, look at how beautiful it is. Jesus says, verse 2, do you see the great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, this building is coming down. Just like God told Solomon, the building's coming down. And then, verses 24 to 27, we see the promise, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be failing, falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So there's a promise that comes with the, the judgment. Uh, look at verse 31. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, Jesus, you can take this to the bank. Like, this is what's going to happen. And when these things happen, you'll remember that I told you, and, and you'll know that what I'm saying is true. And then you'll be ready for my coming, which is the whole point. Be ready. Look at verses 32 and 33. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, be on guard. Keep awake. You do not know when the time will come. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. So Jesus' point is, there's judgment coming, but it has to happen, and then I'm coming, and you need to be ready. Because if you're ready, then I will take you to paradise. We're going to set up the kingdom of God, and it's going to be paradise, but you've got to be prepared by looking to me. So I think it's powerful to consider the, the different patterns, the way you see it in the Old Testament, the way you see it in the New Testament, how it relates, similarities, differences. The people in Solomon's day, kingdom of God's about to happen. Nope, it's not. But there's still hope. The people in Jesus' day, they think it's about to happen. Here it comes. Nope, it's not. you still got a long time to wait. But there's still hope. It doesn't mean that God's not in control. There's still hope. God's still working. And so the point is, be ready. So let, let me close with a couple of questions here. What are some reasons that we lose hope and don't stay awake like we should? And I'll, I'll, the thing is, what are some ways we can maintain hope and stay awake? So what causes us to, to not be awake and alert and ready? And what are some ways that we can combat that and actually stay awake and be ready, clinging to the hope so that we are ready when Christ returns? It doesn't happen in our expected time frame. Okay, so one principle to draw out here is, we're reminded when we look at Scripture, boy, it happens over a long time, and it may be a long time. And so be faithful and know that. It's good. I think it's human frailty. We get tired. And then to combat that, we need to encourage one another and remind one another that that day is a coming. Yeah, that's good. So, you know, better one day closer today than yesterday. Yeah, that's good. I like, I like your language you use. We get tired, because that's exactly what Jesus says. Stay awake. And we get sleepy and we go, oh, this is tiring. And it's good to be reminded from God's word. Like this is, we're not the first ones to deal with this and wrestle with this. And it's good to be reminded of God's been at work. And sometimes it's in the still small voice. Sometimes it's not, sometimes it's, there's an Ahab on the throne. And God's still at work. So good. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Plus, we, we can get to relying on the flesh. Yeah. And, uh, that's always a loser. Yeah, that's good. Good. Any other thoughts on that? That's my final my final question, so I think these are good if y'all want to keep going. Keys for staying awake and and some problems why we don't. Yeah. I mean, it, it's work. Yeah. Okay. You're right. It's work. Yeah. Yeah. Complacency. Yeah. Prayer and recognizing the places where we lack faith. Yeah. It's good. Any other thoughts on any of that? You know, I, just a uh, personal story. I talk, we talked to friends of the family, and you know, they were telling us they were talking about their kids who are you know experiencing some difficult times, kind of age. And they said to us, um, they said, "We're looking back now, and we realize we should have." We should have raised our kids in the church better than we did. Like they're, you know, Christian family, but they weren't committed to church. That wasn't a, it. wasn't a discipline of theirs. And they said, "We we really look back and regret that." And they said, "They said to us, we wish we." They said, "We notice you doing it." It's like, well, 
it's kind of hard for us to not do it. I mean, <laughs> when you get paid to do it, you know, <laughs> so don't pat us on the back too much. But, um, but it was, I don't know, it was a good reminder to us, you know, to hear from a family that said, we, looking back, we wish we had made more of this, this more of a priority. And I, and I can see the, I can see benefits of kids who, you know, in the moment, you may say, do we really need to hear this again? Do we really need to do this again? Do we really need this? It's like, yeah, oh, you need regularly, weekly, frequently to be in God's word, come with God's people, worship together. This is the common means of grace that God uses to instill faith in his people and persevere us. So that's one one answer to this question, I think. Right. To be reminded of what we have in Christ. So we come together, we fellowship, and we worship together. We're reminded yes. of what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. I heard one illustration. I've heard it before, but I heard it recently, and it's powerful. You know, some people say, why do I need to go hear a sermon? I don't know what the sermon was from a week ago or two weeks ago. And one answer is, you also don't remember exactly what you ate two weeks ago. <laughs> But you know you ate. And you know, at some level, you're here now because you ate. And so just like you got to keep eating, whether you remember what you ate or don't remember, good, not good, whatever, you need a steady diet of food and you need a steady diet of God's Word in a lot of different forms, personal, corporate, preached, taught, applied. And it's just that, it's that frequency, re- repetition of hearing it that, once again, I think God uses in the life of His people to... Persevere them. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. Would anybody be willing to pray for us?